Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. I'm Henry Femi-Taylor, and I'm joined once again by Neil Thompson and Dev Amratia. Hi, guys. Hello. Hiya. We had a fascinating conversation last time, and what I wanted to pick up on is, and someone's going to scream at me, but digital twi- triplets. Ah! I've said it. <laughs> ah! I, I will scream at you. Someone's got to. Yeah, so I, it, there's an interesting thing here, and this is this is I always I, the thing I like thinking about, or when sort of reviewing economic histories, like these unintentional things that people invent from inventing something else. And I think the interesting thing that you've you've got, Dev, is this. Uh, it goes back to that subject of, and I know I'm I'm being obsessive about this physical dimension of the thing that we're trying to predict. Now. The digital twin world is, you know, a digital representation of a physical thing. I need to stop you. I need to stop you here. Yeah, we know what a digital twin is. Give me an example of somebody accidentally inventing something that when they meant to invent something, something else. Um, oh, my God. It's one of those yeah, things. I'm yeah, I'm putting you on so the spot. Um, oh, God. Yeah, didn't think so. We're going to have to... We're gonna to have to cut one in. I, there, there's loads. Honestly, there's loads. Yeah, so um, we'll suddenly be like, "Yes, actually, um, somebody was inventing the bath, but really they invented the submarine." Right. It's well, it's it's. There was a tire manufacturer that ended up making boats because of the um, because of the type of compounds that they invented, and it just oh, money okay. Boats oh, so you um, tires. there was uh, uh, when uh, in my past life I worked at. At, a, at, an, at, at Shell, um, and there was one thing that happened there. I'm not in any shape or form um, peddling Shell here, um, where they were they were trying to dispose of, find a way to dispose of sulfur that is created inside refineries. It's a nasty compound that really doesn't do very much in life, um, other than go to fertilizers. Um, the um, and and someone actually mistakenly over compressed it. Um, and in in the search of how can we make a better fertilizer, actually discovered an ingredient, a, a new compound mix for roads um, to make um, bitumen um, loaded with waste sulfur, um, which actually had a lower carbon impact on go. bitumen production. Which is like, man, you were trying to build uh, a fertilizer, but you ended up with bitumen for roads. Um, Kind of, um, I think the name of the system is called Thiocrete. Uh, if anyone ever feels like geeking out on bitumen, I've got the classic penicillin. Oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> that's that's the original. It was uh, a total accident. It was just something left overnight. We were doing something else entirely. Whoopsie! Oh, I seem to have. Oh, I seem to have invented penicillin. My bad. There we go. That, that That's as solid as an example as you would ever need. So, Neil, back to your digital triplets. My bad. Sorry. Apologies for <laughs> tangenting so hard. But uh, I feel like you can't just go around telling people that, you know, all those accidental inventions that change the world, you know, you need to context contextualise. I'll dig them out. Anyway, penicillin's a great one. Digital representation of a real thing, right? A digital triplet. This this is third dimension, and the third dimension is essentially your um, 
And it's interesting. So we talk about your clustering in the last episode, you know, the, the, the algorithms creating clusters and it doesn't really know what it's making clusters for, but it's going to try and use the human interpretation aspect of that clustering to be like, oh, it's because of X, Y, Z. Now, what if you just continue down that path of it just being never connected to the geometric space? And it is sort of a algorithmic black box that says of all possibilities, regardless of its geographic context, You've got yourself an interesting twin in the sense of it's the it's the probabilistic twin of the two other states, the, the digital representation of the physical, which is a really in interesting thought experiment of a, you know, if I, I don't think Enplan sits in a bucket that sits in those worlds, it sits in this other space that actually serves an interesting purpose. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I, I confess I also never really thought of it that way. Um, I, I, I also confess that I always felt that we, the work we're doing at NPLAN is, is you, know, um, you know, didn't fit in with the, the digital twin crowd, um, right? Um, either we're, the, we're probably like the ugly duck or, you know, the, the one that didn't quite fit in and they were like, oh, what is this thing? Kind of strange. Um, but I think it is actually quite healthy to think of it as, as a just a wholly different dimension, right? Um, space, space or geometrics, and space and geometrics, um, you know, fundamentally just lacks that that dimension around um, uh, forecastability or 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 uh, ahead of timeness, right? Um, I guess one of the 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 things that we've we've explored uh, in a little bit of detail um, uh, is actually how do, can these worlds blend together? Like, can you actually mesh all of this together into, I don't know, becoming the hyper brain of, of, of a construction project? Um, and, and, and obviously the answer is uh, yes, if you have enough time and money, uh, sure, anything is possible, but um, it, is, it, it is insanely hard. Um, it was hard enough, I mean, you know well enough that it's hard enough to have um, like sophisticated, sufficiently sophisticated twins that are sufficiently representative of what they're supposed to be representing. Then you add in the dimension of if that's one layer of complexity, you've then got the next layer of complexity, which is you're adding the aspect of probabilities onto that and probabilities plus time, right? So you've got multiple complexities meshing onto one another. Mm. Um, there, there are some also some basic things that are really hard. Like, uh, and when I, I have to be clear, like me saying hard does not mean, mean me saying or anyone saying it's impossible. Um, I think most of these things can be overcome, which is how do you get the two things to even talk to each other? Like, is there a way to get, um, I, I think, you know, we've seen companies like Synchro as an example, right? That brought together the plan and the, the 3D model. Um, and then, uh, you know, in a, in a not so inventive way, called it a 4D model. Um, and I know there are multiple Ds that you can chuck on top of these things as well. But what, what I think fascinates me is how, how can you do that at scale across thousands and thousands of projects without an unfortunate person having to manually figure out, aha, so that physical object equals that construction activity, right? Which is sort of 
how software kind of works today and we are slaves to the software uh, rather than the other way around. It's interesting because I think, you know, you have these higher level factors. So the, the cost of all of these things uh, is inherently variable. So if we go into the higher level, and I am not the economics expert on this call, but if a project runs for 25 years and the value of the cost versus the value of an activity at the start is not the same as it is at the end. And there are these other, other kind of higher level uh, economic, cultural, governmental um, factors. It's, it's interesting. It, well, it's price elasticity. It's, it, you know, buying infrastructure has almost an infinite price because the government can always essentially pay, theoretically speaking. And the other end of the equation is that the costs are always bared by the ultimate buyer. So, for example, something as simple as the cost of bidding is always bought by the person that, you know, you have 10 people that bid for a project, all that cost has to go somewhere. I mean, that folds up into overheads and then, you know, somebody else pays for somebody else's cost. So it's quite a, it's quite a, I mean, it's incredibly complicated, but it's, it's quite interesting from a, um, and um, Dev, you said something previously about the, there's, there's two sides to the contract, and, the, and but the solution to getting through it is somewhere that sits in the middle. And what you're hoping with what you're doing is that you're able to mediate that conversation. So, yeah risk can be something that is more tangible because my so my my belief is that if you reduce a cost of transacting and you make risk visible and manageable interesting things happen around business models so another thing i believe is that business models are purely based upon how sticky or fric or, fr or frictionless transactions are plus a risk of appetite so an appetite for risk any slight change in those two things represents a comp an, op an opportunity or destruction of a business model. Um, and I'd wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a solid observation, right? And, and one that I have tons and tons of uh, time for, um, and the one I geek out on. Um, the a, a couple of things to just sort of add to that. Um, the 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 economic balance between invest and not invest, uh, it, and, and the better way to actually think of it is, is in private economics rather than public economics. Um, so private, sorry, private uh, infrastructure investment economics rather than, or it's an unlimited bank account from the government, because yes, they, that becomes a bit weirder. Um, but private firms usually have good principles in the way they operate, right, usually. Uh, i.e. they are generally considered to have uh, a sufficient uh, capability to assess risk of an investment in order to gain, to, to, to return, and in return and provide an economic return to an investor. Um, I, I mean, did you know that infrastructure funds, right? So these are boring funds that are typically run by pension, pension funds, um, or sometimes sovereign wealth, um, their, their average return since 2015 has been 9%. It, it's not bad. I mean, as an, as an asset class, like a 9% return 
I mean, what do we most of us get today as our current interest rate? Bonds are gone to nothing. So at 9% for an infrastructure investment spread over multiple years, it is a fantastic class to go into. So now dissect, you've got, so now I, I'm presenting uh, opposing forces. I'm saying on one hand that these guys are getting 9% returns on their, on their investments. And then on the other hand, construction projects are wild beasts. They go wherever they feel like, they take however long they want. Right, so you've got this um, opposing force going on here. So how do they turn this investment back? The, 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 the reality is that you've actually got a, a, mis like a, a, um, um, a problem of demand and supply where you've got very, very little supply in the market on good projects. And what makes a good project? It is a project that can have quantified outcomes done by the investor. Uh, another interesting fact, you know, since 2015, private investors in the United States have raised over 16,000 different funds that represent $710 billion of cash, right? This is dry powder that they can give, give invest into a construction project uh, for roads, hospitals, whatever a private investor can get their hands onto. $710 billion since 2015. Off that capital, that capital has to get spent, right? You don't raise a cap, raise a fund and then not spend it. They have not yet spent $210 billion. Uh, and bear in mind, these investing periods are typically three to five years, right? So in three to five years, they should have spent $710 billion. They've left, they're still left with $200 billion of unspent capital. Yet again, a second sort of opposing force that we see in the market is that We've got so much infrastructure that we still haven't yet built. You know, Texas is getting, hasn't even got basically a power grid left anymore. Um, you've got, you know, broken roads, railways, airports, all of these problems are everywhere. So you're like, man, shouldn't there be an insane supply of projects that can pull all of this amazing capital that can get all this amazing return, right? There we go. We've got the the failure of demand and supply, actually, in in many ways, um, across the different spectrum. So, in, you know, what sits in the middle of everything, like what sits in the middle of the decision process to purchase or not to purchase, rests the equation of risk. And how it, the question becomes, like, how do we unlock more of these opportunities to become palatable for an investor to throw their money at? Mm. Because... The money exists. It clearly is a lot of money out there that not must get spent. Forget like new capital that we would love to raise from somewhere else. This is literally money that's sitting on a person's table and they can't give it to the projects because they can't quantify the risk. It's insane, isn't it? Because it's a size of the plumbing problem. You know, you, the, the tap's on, but we can't get the water through the pipes uh, and this is, and this, and I think this opens up the other end of the spectrum of the possibilities in, in the sense of let's let's get to the guy on the building site. So at one end you've got investors leaving money on the table, at the other end of that plumbing system is um, a, a dry wall lining fitter that gets paid weekly, and that gap between those two things and how you how you manage that. I mean, imagine. You know, one of the things that I'd love to happen with, you know, with with something like an M plan system is that you're opening up 
that list of this is where we think these things are going to go wrong. This is where you sit inside that map of where things go wrong. How can you help us navigate that? If you can design the interface in a way that um, allows people to say, oh, okay, I was planning to do that then, but looking at the system, we're just, we're going to go and do this other thing down there. And you might pay them a premium for it. Oh yeah. But it represents a saving and, and you're, you're unlocking this, 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 this plumbing so the the tiny nozzle at the end of that plumbing system can be managed and it's not just trying to force all that water down a plumbing system that just can't receive it so that's it's it's an interesting problem because it 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 talks to people at both ends do we know what that risk is i think that's that's the big question for me is is when we say risk and we quantify risk and we we make these decisions against risk how certain are we that those risks are are real or perceived? Well, so all risks are perceived. Uh, there's no such thing as a real risk. Um, the reason I say that is um, perception is down to the fact that it is ahead of time, right? So we perceive that uh, there is X probability of Y happening. Um, the, the challenge is that there is no one and, and I will call bullshit on it, sorry if I may use those words, um, uh, on That's anyone that uh, says this will happen um, in X amount of time. So if we go back to the drywall installer, right? That's thinking, you know, how, how are my incentives aligned with that investor up over there who's got his 9% return? Um, on on my hard work, um, that again very difficult to find. Uh, you know the silver bullet that that magically draws everyone together towards one common good. Uh, that said, I think that common good is is actually in the incentive of uh, confidence or certainty or increasing certainty. Right? It's not to say that I or anyone is going to give you a guarantee of an occurrence in it in advance or in, in the future of time, whether you're the drywall installer or the investor at the top, but actually we're all targeting the reduction of volatility. If that drywall installer just you know, has the mechanism to be able to tell his or her client um, what the most probable window they will execute on, what the most probable risks and opportunities are that they can go and capture, and then they're incentivized to go after that not incentivized to be the fastest and cheapest on day one, because we all know that is complete rubbish. Um, we gave you the contract because you're the cheap guy. It was like, well, yeah, I'm the cheap guy, but I'm also, you know, couldn't care less about delivering your work. The, the snowball effects kick off when, when uh, you know, you don't have all parties inside the contracting chain um, aligned towards the reduction of volatility, which is like, you know, the thing that we will pay a lot of money for um, is just tell us what is probably going to happen with increasing certainty. The person that gives us more certainty gives us more economic return and we mm. reward for it, not rewarding for a false dichotomy of a promise made without an understanding of risk. And I think that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because now we're coming back all the way back around to database decision making you know we are being informed in our decisions and that is what drives us forwards 
And that's better for everybody because if you know you have four days work, that's actually probably better than knowing you have maybe three, maybe seven. You know, yeah. actually the average is higher in that level of uncertainty, but you can plan a lot better knowing you have a specific amount of work ahead of you. And that, again, that cascades, if you can provide that level of certainty, that's cascades up to everybody, up into the, to the great big profit margins in the sky. So we'd be richer. <laughs> that would be the end of today's episode. <laughs> uh, but it's, 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 and that's where we get to, this is the, the interesting thing about that third, that third dimension of the, of the, I mean, maybe we should, I shouldn't call it the third dimension because then we get into 3D. And yeah, yeah. Uh, if you mention 5D, Henry explodes. So just. <laughs> I refuse to believe that money is a dimension that physicists recognize. I'm just putting that out there. It's not a thing. All right. And so, um, <laughs> so, but it, but it, but it, it's interesting because it's then you're 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 adding the probabilistic dimension to that. We want to build a more confident and less variable industry, and the conversation that we had is about how do we go about doing that. It's not it's not necessarily about building three D models of things and attaching data to those models. Actually, there is a third way, and and it's. It's, it's, it's looking at the probabilistic models and, you know, it's just shifting that way. Because if you think about the population of people that may listen to this, they're, they're on this journey of, okay, we used to put plans on bits of paper, 2D, and then we're going to extrude those up into 3D. And then, oh, we'll add time to that. That's the 4D. And then we get into this conversation about attaching metadata to this 3D model. And, you know, our, our certainties from that thought step pattern i think what we've discussed here is actually we can we can look at the data regardless of its geographic properties and see the world in a different way if we allow um i mean i know machine vision means something completely different but if we allow machines to view the data in a way that it sees it and then allow human vision on top of that We've actually got ourselves an interesting proposition in the sense of one, what does that tell us? What does that enable to do? And I think our conversation has been about enabling us to have a, have a model that talks about variability and confidence and the, and making risk visible in a different way. Um, and we're just opening the door. We're just, this is, this is, we, we are creating a world where suddenly there is data to make decisions on, because that was a, that's a whole piece of work in and of itself. And we've come a long way to create that groundwork. And that data does not inherently reduce your risk. Yeah. It doesn't inherently do anything, but it creates a potential platform for interesting solutions that can view that data in a way that perhaps we couldn't imagine and perhaps give us ways that we we can imagine showing us real clarity so that humans can make decisions it's not not all just ai mm. and i think that's the real yeah. opportunity here is that we're, we're creating a, a world where there's greater knowledge where we can summarize 
but summarize accurately and not just based on the previous project that we worked on. We're summarizing yeah. based on what's really happening on the ground. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the, the, I, I fully see that. And, you know, we, I've, I recently heard a really cool stat um, coming in from one of the major infrastructure projects in the UK, which is the team out there said, this is risk, risk managers, uh, risk analysts, planning engineers, planning managers, project controls folks saying, you know, we spend 90% of our time um, just going and figuring out what data we have to put into our model to give us some view of what might happen to our project, whether it's benchmarking or um, cost forecasting and so forth, right? Um, and then 10% of our time, it goes into, uh, now that we've got some result, what do we do with it? Um, and machines actually flip that on its head, right? Um, you actually bring forward and, and actually tell project teams that now your, your new task, which is actually the far more valuable task, is not to be the number cruncher, but to be the action person, right? You're the person that now that we've discovered X, Y, and Z about the project, that these insights that we now need to do, need to think about, uh, take action on, um, devise better strategies, you know, do something with it. Um, you spend 90% of your time doing that rather than uh, doing the analysis itself um, or, or number crunching itself to go produce analysis. So I think we, I, I'd leave this as there's tremendous opportunity for project teams to like to upskill and up value. I don't know, is that a better way of up value? That sounds awful, doesn't it? Um, but it, it, what I mean an American is, accent, it'll be fine. <laughs> what, what I mean is for, 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 for folks to on the project team to be able to, to bring back better value onto the projects that they're serving on. Um, and I think that, you know, what will always in any economic return calculation does better for the person that does that kind of work. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's the key takeaway for me there is that uh, we can go from 90% admin, 10% thinking and making good decisions to 10% admin, 90% making interesting and good decisions. Yeah. So... Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. I have been Henry Femi-Taylor, and today I was joined by Neil Thompson Goodbye. and Dev Amratia. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye.